0: 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 5 and 6 in preparation for this morning and, um, and when she came out of the room where she had been reading uh, she looked at me and she said Darren I'm praying for you <laughs> and, uh, and of course I appreciate that I love it when she prays for me um, but there was some fear in her eyes as she said those words I'm uh, embarking on uh, the book of 1 uh, Corinthians but particularly this morning chapters 5 and chapter 6 I want to encourage you Again, uh, to pick up your Bibles and to read, during this period of time, the book of First Corinthians. Uh, but not only the book of First Corinthians, I want to continue to encourage you to read your Bibles. Um, I can't explain it. Uh, I don't fully grasp the truth of it. But I am completely convinced that there is supernatural life in God's Word. And I and I want to challenge you to pick up your Bibles in whatever form you read, um, whether that's on your device, electronic device, or whether it's in a book or uh, like this or 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 another form of the Bible. I want to challenge you to pick up your Bibles and to read God's Word, uh, because I believe that life, supernatural life, will be injected into you as you do that. This morning, First Corinthians chapter five and six. A couple of great chapters in the Bible if you are okay with uh, a little bit of controversy. If you are okay with something that doesn't, on the outset, uh, immediately make 100% sense or doesn't immediately translate perfectly into our culture or into your context. Jesse spoke a couple of weeks ago on uh, unity in the church. Uh, I think Mike spoke last week on wisdom in the church, and uh, we were kind of debating, but but when we er originally did this little outline, we actually put the words uh, at the beginning of each one of these little titles, the need for, and so in Jesse's case it would have been the need for unity in the church, the need for wisdom in the church, and this morning we would say the need for morality. In the church, and I might quickly add, it's probably the most known fact about Billy Graham in a time in American history when nearly every TV evangelist became embroiled in some type uh, of controversial uh, matters, issues, usually as a result of some moral indiscretion of some kind, often sexual and also often financial, uh, Billy Graham is known for his moral integrity. morality in the church, the need for morality in the church. so so what are you say, you're saying so what in the world does um, is the dilemma with the quote that we had up on the screen just minutes ago uh, from Billy Graham, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. it's God's job to judge and it's my job to love. Well in some ways it seems like 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is all about, Challenging us to do the opposite when it comes to judging each other. One of the key verses in this chapter is, is right at the end, or in these chapters, is right at the end of chapter 5, 12 and 13, where it says it says this. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And we go, amen. Uh, but here's the problem. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside Expel the wicked man from among you. Do you see the dilemma? Uh, Billy Graham says, and I agree, and I've preached it also, it's God's job to judge, not mine, not yours. And by the way, he gets that from the Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, maybe the most uh, common or the most popular um, uh, exhortation for us to not judge each other. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's pretty clear. And it's likely the foundation for Billy Graham's quote. So somehow we need to deal with this little discrepancy that we find when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In my Bible... Uh, I'm not sure how your Bibles work, if they uh, have similar titles at the beginning of certain sections. Uh, In my Bible, there's a little man-made title at the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and that little title for that little section is simply, uh, Expel the Immoral Brother. And there's different titles that different Bibles give to that section. But it's taken right out of that final verse in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, that final verse where it says, expel the wicked man from among you. It's a key line. It's a key thought. And we need to work with that just a little bit. But in order to do that, we need to get the context. In order to get the context, we need to back up to verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. Let me read verses 1 and 2. Kind of sets the stage. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you And of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? So they have a big time issue. There is a major uh, moral dilemma. There is open immorality in the church. And if we read this correctly, then they don't see a problem. In fact, it sounds like they are still proud and boastful about how things are going in their church. And perhaps even somewhat proud about how they are dealing with or not dealing with this particular issue. And so Paul begins to give some instructions about what they should be doing. They should be filled with grief. They should put him out of the church. And if you keep reading past verse 2 and down further into the chapter, they should hand him over to Satan. They should quit associating with this man. They should even quit eating with people like this. And then that final blow kind of at the end of the chapter where he says, Expel the wicked man from among you. Are you all praying for me by now? And we read this and we feel like, I mean, surely these details are important. Uh, I mean, after all, uh, it seems like a pretty clear blueprint of how to deal with men who sleep with their father's wives and maybe even actually a blueprint for how to deal with anyone that intentionally keeps on sinning. I mean, it's all here. It's, it's, it's a list of specific instructions Giving by Paul, given by Paul, telling us how to treat someone who's part of the church family, who's, who's recklessly continuing to live a sinful life. And yet we've struggled with how do we do this? How do we put someone out of the fellowship? How do we refuse to eat with someone? How do we judge someone in the church? how do we hand someone over to Satan? Sounds horrible. These are, these are tough instructions and they don't seem to fit our culture. But, but it says here that's what we're supposed to do. Now, I hope I haven't lost you yet, so try and track with me here for, uh, for a few more minutes. Um, the last verse in chapter 5, the last half of the last verse, that phrase that I've already used a couple of times, expel the wicked man from among you. Uh, you may have a Bible uh, that has some cross-references or a study Bible that gives you some helps. And uh, and maybe, like my Bible, it, it points you to uh, some Old Testament verses in the book of Deuteronomy. And there are several different Old Testament verses there from between chapter 17 and 24 uh, where it uses the exact same phrase and so Paul here is actually quoting from the Old Testament law and in that Old Testament law in Deuteronomy uh, different illustrations or different examples are used if someone has worshiped other gods if someone lies while testifying in court If a woman is found to have slept around before marriage, if a man sleeps with another man's wife, if someone kidnaps another purpose person for the purpose of slavery, in each case, those are the illustrations or examples given. In each case, it uses the wording you must purge the evil from among you. The same line used here by Paul. Separate out the evil. The only problem is that in these Old Testament references where it talks about purging out the evil from among you, are you ready for this? The specific instruction is to publicly put that person to death. Now, purging the evil from among you in the Old Testament at that point in time, was that severe. And so Paul quotes that same phrase here in First Corinthians. So, what is Paul saying? Is he saying, go out and kill the sky. In fact, go out and kill everyone that is sexually immoral and greedy and an idolater and a slanderer and a drunkard and a swindler. swindler. Take the Old Testament literally? apply that specific Old Testament instruction that was given 1,500 years ago, earlier in a different time, and in a different culture, take that specific instruction and apply it in your specific time frame, in your specific world, at this culture, at this point, and in your time? And he says, no, 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 no. He says, you, that specific phrase in the Old Testament law in today's world, not today's world, but in Paul's today's world, this is what it means. This is how you exercise it in your world. And so he gives them these, this list of things that we had up on the uh, still have up here. and he says, this is the how it looks to do what it says in Deuteronomy in your world. I'm saying the same thing to you that Paul said to his church, we should not try and emulate exactly what Paul prescribed for the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world in an entirely different culture. Uh, Yes, we must confront evil, we must challenge sin, but it must be done in a culturally relevant way. That's exactly what Paul was saying to them here in 1 Corinthians. He was using an Old Testament law that had a very severe exercise. And he translates that law into their time, in their culture, in their frame, uh, uh, life. And he says, this is what that law looks like in your time. And now we take what Paul said and now we need to translate it into our time and we need to continue to confront evil and we need to continue to challenge sin but we need to do it in a way that is culturally relevant in our world. And so we do not emulate the exact same specific list of things that Paul gave But rather we take the principle that was prescribed to the children of Israel 3,500 years ago and again to Corinth 2,000 years ago and we translate it into our world today and we say we do not do the exact same things but our goal is to accomplish the exact same purpose. We've struggled with this over and over in the past. And I can show you religion after religion that still struggles with this. Religion after religion that is still trying to emulate the exact details of the prescription that was meant for them in their time. And time and again we have failed to consider the purpose. And strive for the purpose. In fact, there are times when we have sacrificed the purpose for the sake of emulating the prescription. Are you with me? There are times when we have sacrificed the purpose for the sake of emulating the prescription. Just like Paul takes an Old Testament instructions and changes the details of how to specifically apply it in their culture, so also we must do the same. Take the principle and then apply it in our culture in relevant ways. Identify and hold up the purpose. How can we best strive for the purpose? What is the purpose? And so I want to say here this morning what is the purpose? What is Paul driving at in these chapters? Let me show you a few different phrases here that I think help us to understand what Paul would say is the purpose. First off, go to verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 5. Uh, there's a couple of words there that are kind of key. Um, the words, soul that. Anytime you read that, uh, those two words together, it seems to be driving towards identifying a purpose. And so he says uh, in, in verse 5, uh, let me just get the exact... Hand this man over to Satan. Uh, and he's given some other instructions already. So that... So, here we've got the purpose. We're doing these things so that, and the purpose in this case is to somehow kill or get rid of this man's sinful nature, so that the sinful nature will be destroyed. And morality, I like the words of that song that we sang the last one, turn our eyes. Uh, Turn our eyes from evil. That was one of the lines in there. Uh, That's exactly what we're talking about. Um, Eradicating evil. Getting rid of doing away with sin. And moving towards getting our eyes focused on what is right and what is good and what is holy and what's pure. Getting rid of eradicating. Working at killing off the sinful nature. So that the sinful nature will be destroyed. And if you keep reading, so that his spirit will be saved in the end. We want this guy to quit sinning here on earth. And we want this guy ultimately to end up in heaven. It's really that simple. That's the purpose. And so we want to do whatever we need to do as a church to accomplish this purpose. And Paul is saying in their context, he's saying, these are some of the things that you do in your context in order to accomplish this purpose. And now we ask ourselves the question, in our context, what do we do in our context in order to accomplish this very same purpose? How do we work at challenging each other to destroy the sinful nature that wants to grab a hold of us? How do we challenge each other to get rid of the sinful nature and move towards a holistic, complete relationship with God, a forever relationship with God that's going to ensure that we will be saved in the end. What's the best way for us to accomplish that in our culture, where we are here today? And then if you keep on reading here, it's not just this guy that they're supposed to be concerned about, but it's all the rest of the church family. And then as you read on into chapter 6, it becomes clear that we don't actually just want this for the people in the context of the church. We want this for the people everywhere. He makes reference in chapter 6, verse 6 and there he's talking about another moral dilemma, and it's the moral dilemma of people not getting along with each other, people fighting each other, even taking each other to court, in the context, all of this, within the context of the family of God. And he says, and you're doing all this kind of stuff in front of unbelievers. And so it's clear that he's that he's trying to expand the purpose. The purpose is not just that we all, within these walls here, that we all are going to kill the sinful nature within us, and that we all... Inside here, that are part of this church family, that we will all be ready to meet God when He comes or when He takes us home when we pass away. But actually, the goal is, the purpose is, that that be expanded beyond to everybody. And that we live our lives in such a way so that everybody will be attracted. And everybody will come to a place of getting rid of their sinful nature. And taking on and embracing a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Paul challenges them, do whatever it takes to accomplish the purpose in your culture, in your time frame, where you live, the way your world works. Accomplish, work towards accomplishing that purpose. Now, we've got a couple minutes left. And in these few minutes, I I do want to draw out, I think, um, some general guidelines that we can draw out of Paul's specifics, some general guidelines that will also challenge or help us to move towards accomplishing the purpose. The guidelines come directly out of these two chapters. Moving towards morality in the church. How can we do that? How can we move toward that purpose? First, number one. Um, I think it's pretty clear if you read through these two chapters That Paul is calling the people in the church to exhibit or to give evidence of a higher standard. Um, We cannot expect the rest of the world to pursue the same kind of morals that we should be pursuing. Yes, Paul is saying with the world's way of thinking, that's how things are done in their world. When the sinful nature has not been crucified, then you do things like that. If you check chapter 6 verse 11 it says that is how some of you or what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Paul says it doesn't make sense to think that the Holy Spirit living inside of you, the Holy Spirit filling you would have no impact whatsoever on how you live. That doesn't make any sense. And so in order for us to move toward this purpose, we need to in our lives, we need to give evidence of a higher standard. We need to give evidence of the fact that we believe as, as followers of Jesus, we are called to a higher standard than, than, than people who have no relationship with Jesus. Than people who do not believe in a Jesus. And so check chapter 5, uh, uh, verse 11, another list of, of different things, and, and I believe it's fairly clear that when it comes to to sexual morality. There needs to be a higher standard among people who are filled by the Holy Spirit, among those who profess to be followers of Jesus. When it comes to greed and wanting what others have, there must be a higher standard. When it comes to drinking and getting drunk, uh, there needs to be a higher standard Uh, among those of us who follow Jesus than among those who have no relationship with Jesus. When it comes to how we talk about other people, there needs to be a higher standard. When it comes to how we do business, and how we fill out our taxes, there there needs to be a higher standard. These are all taken directly out of chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, There's a list of different things there that Paul alludes to, and, and I believe he's saying, there needs to be a higher standard among those of you who call yourselves uh, followers of Jesus. Those of you who make up the church family. And then as you go on into chapter 6, and especially toward the end of chapter 6, he, he, he approaches something that uh, might be a little more difficult at times for us to accept. When it comes to how you treat your own body, uh, there must be a higher standard. There must be a higher standard among those of you, I mean, after all, your body is now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ever thought of it like that? The Holy Spirit lives. I mean, if you had a building on your yard someplace where God lived, uh, how would you treat that building? Would you at least give it a coat of paint once in a while? Would Would you make sure that the shingles weren't Uh, deteriorated, that the roof wasn't leaking? Would you make sure that, that the building was in good shape? That's what Paul is saying here. Start believing the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and so treat your body as the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Treat your body as the place where God lives, where God dwells. And so there needs to be... It only makes logical sense, Paul is saying, that you would have a higher standard... In how you treat your body. Than those who have no relationship with Jesus. And no understanding about the fact. That God wants to live inside of them. So. Evidence. Give evidence of a higher standard. Secondly. We are called to hold each other accountable. Again. It generally comes out of. If you read through these chapters. You're going to get a a sense. That Paul is challenging uh, followers of Jesus. People who are followers of Jesus. To hold each other accountable. And uh, I. I'll be the first to admit I'm not always sure exactly what that means. I, uh, but I do know that throughout God's Word, there are, there, there are clear um, challenges for us to hold each other accountable, to challenge each other. Uh, and it seems pretty clear as you read God's Word also that, that God was pretty intentional when He created us with the need for each other. None of us are strong enough to make it on our own. None of us are godly enough to make it on our own. None of us are pure enough to make it on our own. We need each other. We need to have the... uh, And thank you, um, uh, Carl, for, for talking a little bit about the hurt, hope, and healing sessions that... That as we share those stories, we, we're in, we are inspired by each other and encouraged by each other and blessed by each other. And as you read God's word, you get this clear sense that God intentionally created us with the need for each other. And I think Paul is just taking that to another uh, degree here or, or showing us another aspect of that here when he says, um, you need to help hold each other accountable. Uh, we're all going to mess up once in a while. But we need, to, we need to challenge each other. We need to encourage each other. We need to encourage each other to hold each other and hold each other accountable. I think one of the, one of the most um, effective tactics of the devil is to um, convince us um, of a couple of different things, but it always has to do with being isolated or alone. Either um, I don't need anybody else, or um, I don't want to tell anybody else, or I'm sure nobody else cares, or, But the devil will do his absolute best to somehow try to um, isolate you. And, and it only makes sense, again, the laws of nature. It happens uh, in nature all the time when, when um, a predator wants to attack and kill uh, its prey. Um, the first thing they got to do is somehow try to, to um, isolate. Isolate the prey from the rest of the... Of the of the crowd, of the herd, of the flock, and get them alone. And once they're alone... And so the devil the devil's all about that. And so to convince us somehow that we are alone, or we should be alone, or you want to be alone, or don't tell anybody, or just... And it's one of the tactics of the devil. And, and God continues to remind us, in his, I created you with the need for each other. And accountability is, is a huge part of that. We, we need to pursue accountability in our world in culturally appropriate ways. Third and final, uh, we are called to show true grace. Uh, emphasis on the word true, true grace. If you go to chapter 5, verses 2 and 6, it seems as though they are proud and boastful about the fact that in all likelihood, scholars believe they are proud and boastful about the fact that they are not making a big deal of this immorality in the church. Uh, we are showing grace. We're showing boundless grace toward this open immorality in the church. Look at us and how we show boundless grace. Limitless grace. Uh, by not making a big deal about this about this thing that's going on. We don't say anything bad about what they're doing. We don't challenge them about what they're doing. We allow them to keep on fully functioning in the church despite what they're doing because we believe in grace. Look at how we show grace. Uh, If you would take the time to read 2 Corinthians chapter 2 there's a little section in there. It's Paul's next letter to the same church And in that next letter to the same church, he addresses this same issue again, and he challenges the church to begin to show love and mercy and grace toward these same people that are involved in this sin here. Showing grace does not mean everything goes. Showing grace does not mean there is no such thing as right and wrong. In fact... There is no such thing as grace, if there is no right and wrong. Are you with me? There is no such thing as grace, if there is no such thing as right and wrong. Grace only comes into effect because there is such a thing as wrong. Grace only comes into effect because there is such a thing as sin. And so in a sense, part of showing someone true grace is identifying the sin, calling it sin, acknowledging the wrongness of it, and then not condemning, not ostracizing, but offering forgiveness and showing mercy in the context of the wrong. Now remember... This is written for a specific group of people, in a specific situation, at a specific time in history. The only reason Paul addresses these two specific issues here, the sexual immorality and the lawsuits among brothers, is because at this specific point, these were the issues. Paul was no more concerned in the big picture about these two sins than he is about any other sins that are listed in the Bible. In fact, he points in that direction in chapter 5 verse 11 where he goes on to list many other sins. I believe in large part these two chapters in the Bible intend to show us the need for a passionate pursuit of morality in the church. It is God's call to his people. Be moral people. Hold yourselves to a high standard. Challenge each other. And so, show each other true grace in the process. All of it in culturally relevant ways. Amen. And God bless us as we pursue that together as a church family. If you want to stand with us, we'll be singing I Am Set Free.